TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference. This episode features the writer, Amy Tan. Here's Amy Tan. The value of nothing, out of nothing comes something. That was an essay that I wrote when I was 11 years old, and I got a B+. (laughs) And I'm going to talk about nothing out of something and how we create. And I'm going to try and do that within the 18-minute time span that we were told to stay within and to follow the Ted Commandments that um, is actually uh, something that creates a near-death experience, but near-death is good for creativity. So I also want to explain, because Dave Eggers said he was going to heckle me if I said anything that was a lie or not true to universal creativity. So what I, And I've done it this way for half the audience who is scientific. I probably got it wrong. When I say we, I don't mean you necessarily. I mean me and my right brain, my left brain, and the one that's in between that is the censor and tells me what I'm saying is wrong. And... I'm going to do that also by looking at what I think is part of my creative process, which includes a number of things that happen, actually. The nothing started even earlier than the moment in which I'm creating something new. And that includes um, nature and nurture and what I refer to as nightmares. Now, in the nature area, we um, look at whether or not we are innately, um, you know, innately um, equipped with something perhaps in our brains, some abnormal chromosome that causes this muse-like effect. And some people would say that we're born with it in some other means. And others, like my mother, would say that I get my material from past lives. By the way, I have to explain. I did these slides about 3 to 5 o'clock in the morning, and I had to use... Uh, photo booth and whatever was in my office, including myself. So some people would also say that creativity may be a function of uh, some other neurological quirk and and um, Van Gogh syndrome that you have a little bit of, you know, psychosis um, or depression. I do have to say somebody, I read, read recently that Van Gogh wasn't really uh, necessarily psychotic, that he might have had temporal lobe seizures and that might have caused this spurt of creativity. And I don't I I suppose it does something in some part of your brain. And I will mention that I actually developed temporal lobe seizures um, a a number of years ago, but it was during the time I was writing my last book. And some people say that book is is quite different. Um, I think that part of it also begins with a sense of um, identity crisis. You know, who am I? Why am I this particular person? Why am I not black like everybody else? Um, and sometimes you're, you're equipped with skills, but they may not be the kind of skills that enable creativity. I used to draw. I, I thought I would be an artist, and I had a miniature poodle. Um, and it wasn't bad, but it wasn't really creative because all I could really do was represent in a very one-on-one way. And I, I have a sense that I probably copied this from a book. Um, And then I also wasn't really shining in a certain area that I wanted to be. And um, 
you know, you look at those scores, and it wasn't bad, but it, it was not certainly predictive that I would one day make my living out of the artful arrangement of words. Also, one of the principles of creativity is to have a little childhood trauma. And I had the usual kind that I think a lot of people had, and that is that, you know, I had expectations placed on me. That, that figure right there, by the way, figure right there was a toy given to me when I was about nine years old, and it was to help me become a doctor from a very early age. I have some ones that were long-lasting from the age of five to 15. Um, this was supposed to be my side occupation, and it led to a sense of failure. Um, but there were, actually, there was some, something quite real in my life that happened when I was about 14. And it was discovered that my brother in 1967 and then my father six months later had brain tumors. And my mother believed that something had gone wrong and she was going to find out what it was and she was going to fix it. My father was a Baptist minister, and he believed in miracles and that God's will would take care of that. But, of course, they ended up dying six months apart. And after that, my mother believed that it was fate or curses. She went looking through all the reasons in the universe why this would have happened, everything except randomness. She did not believe in randomness. There was a reason for everything. And one of the reasons, she thought, was that her mother, who had died when she was very young, um, was angry at her. And so I had this notion of death all around me because my mother also believed that I would be next and she would be next. And when you are faced with the prospect of death very soon, you be, begin to think very much about everything. You become very creative in a, in a survival sense. And this then led to my big questions, and they're the same ones that I have today. And they are, why do things happen, and how do things happen? And the one my mother asked, how do I make things happen? It's a wonderful way to uh, look at these questions when you, when you write a story, because after all, in that framework between one, the page one and 300, you have to answer this question of, why things happen, how things happen, in what order they happen, what are the influences, how do I as the narrator, as the writer, also influence that. And it's also one that I think many of our scientists have been asking. It's a kind of cosmology, and I have to develop a cosmology of my own universe as the creator of that universe. Um, and you see there, there are a lot of um, there's a lot of back and forth in trying to make that happen, trying to figure it out, years and years oftentimes. Um, so when I look at creativity, I also think that it is this, this sense or this inability to repress my looking at associations in practically anything in life. And I got a lot of them during uh, what's been going on um, throughout this conference, almost everything that's been going on. And so I'm going to use as the metaphor this association, quantum mechanics, which I really don't understand, but I'm still going to use it as the process for explaining how it is the metaphor. Um, so 
In quantum mechanics, of course, you have dark energy and dark matter. And it's the same thing in looking at these questions of how things happen. There's a lot of unknown, and you often don't know what it is except by its absence. But when you make those associations, you want them to come together in a kind of synergy in the story. And what you're finding is what matters, the meaning. And that's what I look for in my work, a personal meaning. There is also the uncertainty principle, which is part of quantum mechanics, as I understand it. And this happens constantly in the writing. And there's a terrible and dreaded observer effect in which you're looking for something and, you know, things are happening simultaneously and you're looking at it in a different way and, and you're trying to really look for the about and so what is the story about and if you try too hard then you will only write the about you won't discover anything and what you were supposed to find what you hoped to find to find in some serendipitous way is no longer there now i don't want to ignore the other side of what happens in our universe like many of our scientists have, and so I am going to just throw in string theory here and just say that creative people are multidimensional and there are 11, 11 universes or 11 levels, I think, of anxiety and they all operate at the same time. So there is also a big question of ambiguity and I would, I would link that to something called the cosmological constant. Um, you don't know what is operating, but something is operating there. And ambiguity to me is very uncomfortable in my life. And I have it. Moral ambiguity. Um, it is constantly there. And just as an example, this is one that recently came to me. It was something I read in an editorial by a woman who was talking about the war in Iraq. And she said, save a man from drowning, you were responsible to him for life. A very famous Chinese saying, she said, and that means that because we went into Iraq, we should stay there until things were solved, you know, maybe even 100 years. So there was another one that, um, that I, I came across, and it's saving fish from drowning. And is what Buddhist fishermen say, because they're not supposed to kill um, anything, and they also have to make a living, and people need to be fed. So their way of rationalizing that is they are saving the fish from drowning, and unfortunately, in the process, the fish die. Now, what's encapsulated in, in both these drowning metaphors, actually, one of them is my mother's interpretation, and it is a famous Chinese saying because she said it to me, save a man from drowning, you're responsible to him for life, and it was a warning, don't get involved in other people's business or you're going to get stuck. Okay, I think if somebody really was drowning, she'd save them. But um, both of these sayings, saving a fish from drowning or saving a man from drowning, to me they had to do with intentions. And all of us in life, when we see a situation, we have a response and then we have intentions. Or we, there's an ambiguity of what that should be that we should do. And then we do something and the results of that may not match what our intentions had be. Maybe things go wrong. And so after that, what are our responsibilities? Where, what are we supposed to do? Do we stay in for life or do we do something else and justify and say, well, my intentions were good and um, therefore I it cannot be held responsible for all of it. That is the ambiguity in my life 
that really disturbed me and led me to write a, a book called Saving Fish from Drowning. Um, I saw examples of that. Once I identified this um, question, it was all over the place. I got these hints everywhere. And then, in a way, I knew that they had always been there. And then writing, that's what happens. I get these hints, these clues, and I realize that they've been hard. They, they've been obvious, and yet they have not been. And what I need, in effect, is a focus. When I have the question, it is a focus. And all these things that seem to be flotsam and jetsam in life actually go through that question. And what happens is those particular things become relevant. And it seems like it's happening all the time. You think there's a sort of coincidence going on, a serendipity, in which you're getting all this help from the universe. And it may also be explained that now you have a focus and you are noticing it more often. But you apply this. You begin to look at things having to do with your tensions, your brother who's fallen into trouble. Do you take care of him? Why or why not? Um, it may be something that is perhaps more serious, as I said, human rights in Burma. I was thinking that I shouldn't go because somebody said if I did, it would show that I approved of the military regime there. And then after a while, I had to ask myself, why do we take on knowledge? Why do we take on assumptions that other people have given us? And it was the same thing that I felt when I was growing up and was hearing these um, rules and of, of moral conduct from my father, who was a Baptist minister. Um, so I decided that I would go to Burma for my own intentions and uh, still didn't know that if I went there, what the result of that would be if I wrote a book. Um, and I just would have to face that later uh, when the time came. We are all concerned with things that we see in the world that we are aware of. It's, we, we come to this uh, point and say, what as do I as an individual do? Not all of us can go to Africa or work at hospitals. Um, so what do we do if we have this moral response, this feeling? Um, I also, I think one of the biggest things we are all looking at and we talked about today is genocide. Um, this leads to this question, when I look at all these things that are morally ambiguous and uncomfortable, and I consider what my intention should be, I realize it goes back to this identity question that I had when I was a child, and why am I here, and what is the meaning of my life, and what is my place in the universe? And again, it seems so obvious, and yet it is not. We all hate moral ambiguity in some sense, and yet, it is also absolutely necessary in writing a story. It is the place where I begin. Sometimes I get help from the universe, it seems. My mother would say it was the ghost of my grandmother from the very first book because it seemed I knew things I was not supposed to know. Instead of writing that the mother, the grandmother died accidentally from an overdose of opium while having too much of a good time, it actually was, I actually put down in the story that the, the woman killed herself and that actually was the way it happened. And my mother decided that that information must have come from my grandmother. There, is, there are also things, 
quite uncanny, um, which bring me information that will help me in the writing of the book. In this case, I was writing a story that included some kind of detailed period of history, a certain location, and I needed to find something historically that would match that. And I took down this book, and I first page that I flipped it to was exactly the setting and the time period and the kind of character I needed. It was a Taiping Rebellion happening in the area near Guilin, outside of that, and a character who thought he was the son of God. You wonder, are these things random chance? Well, what is random? What is what is chance? What is luck? What are, what are things that you get from the universe that you can't really explain? And that goes into the story, too. These are the things I constantly think about from day to day, especially when good things happen and, in particular, when bad things happen. But I do think there's a kind of serendipity, and I do want to know what those elements are so I can thank them and also try to find them in my life. Because, again, I think that when I am aware of them, more of them happen. Another chance encounter is when I went uh, to a place. I just was with some friends, and we drove randomly to a different place, and and we ended up in this non-tourist location, a beautiful village, pristine. And we walked three valleys beyond. In the third valley, there was something quite mysterious and ominous, a discomfort I felt, and then I knew that had to be setting of my book. And in writing one of the scenes, it happened in that third valley. For some reason, I wrote about Karen, stacks of rocks that a, a, a man was, was building, and I didn't know exactly why I had it, but it was so vivid. Um, I got stuck, and a friend, when she asked if I would go for a walk with our dogs, that I said, sure. And about 45 minutes later, walking along the beach, I came across this. And it was a man, a Chinese man, and he was stacking these things, not with glue, not with anything. And I asked him, how is it possible to do this? And he said, well, I guess with everything in life, there's a a place of balance. And this was exactly the meaning of my story at that point. I had so many examples. I have so many instances like this when I'm writing a story, and I cannot explain it. Is it because I had the filter that I have such a strong coincidence in writing about these things? Or is it a kind of serendipity that we cannot explain, like the cosmological constant? A big thing that I also think about is accidents. And as I said, my mother did not believe in randomness. Is there, are there, what is the nature of accidents? And how are we uh, going to assign what the responsibility and the causes are outside of a court of law? Um, I was able to see that in a firsthand way when I went to a beautiful Dong village in Guizhou, in the poorest province of China. Um, and I saw this beautiful place. I knew I wanted to come back, and I had a chance to do that when National Geographic asked me if I wanted to write anything about China. They said, yes, about this village of singing people, a singing tribe, a singing minority, and um, they agreed. And between the time I saw this place and the next time I went, there was a terrible accident. A man, an old man, fell asleep, and his quilt dropped in a pan of fire that kept him warm. Sixty homes were destroyed and uh, 40 were damaged. Um, Responsibility was assigned to the family. The man's sons were banished to live three kilometers away in a cow shed. And, of course, as Westerners, we say, well, it was an accident. That's not fair. It's the son, not the father. 
Um, and I, when I go on a story, I have to let go of those kinds of beliefs. It takes, it takes a while, but I have to let go of them and just go there and be there. And so I was there on three occasions, different seasons. And I began to sense something different about the history and what had happened before and the nature of life in a very poor village and what you find is your joys and your rituals, your traditions, your links with other families. And I saw how this had a kind of, had a kind of justice in its responsibility. Um, I was able to um, find out also about the ceremony that they were using, that, uh, a ceremony they hadn't used in about um, 29 years. And it was to send um, some men, a feng shui master, sent men down to the underworld on ghost horses. Now, you as Westerners and I as Westerners would say, well, that's superstition. But after being there for a while and seeing the amazing things that happen, you begin to wonder whose beliefs are those that are in operation in the world determining how things happen. So I remained with them, and the more I wrote that story, the more I got into those beliefs, and I think that's important for me to take on the beliefs because that is where the story is real, and that is where I'm going to find the answers to how I feel about certain questions that I have in life. Years go by, of course, in the writing. It doesn't happen instantly as it, I'm trying to convey it to you here on, um, at TED. The book comes and it goes. When it arrives, it is no longer my book. It is in the hands of readers, and they interpret it differently. But I go back to this question of how do I create something out of nothing, and how do I create my own life? And I think it is by questioning and saying to myself that there are no absolute truths. I believe in specifics, the specifics of the story and the past, the specifics of that past and what is happening in the story at that point. I also believe that in thinking about things, my thinking about luck and fate and coincidence and accidents, God's will and the synchrony of mysterious forces, I will come to some notion of what that is, how we create. I have to think of my role, where I am in the universe, and what did somebody intend me to, intend for me to be that way, or was it just something I came up with? And I also can find that by imagining fully and becoming... Uh, what is imagined and yet is in that real world, the fictional world. And that is how I find particles of truth, not the absolute truth or the whole truth. And they have to be in all possibilities, including those I never considered before. So there are never complete answers. Or rather, if there is an answer, it is to remind myself that it, there is uncertainty in everything, and that is good, because then I will discover something new. And if there is a partial answer, a more complete answer for me, it is to simply imagine. And to imagine is to put myself in that story until there is only, there is a transparency between me and the story that I am creating. And that's how I've discovered that if I feel what is in the story, in one story, then I come the closest, I think, 
to knowing what compassion is, to feeling that compassion. Because for everything in that question of how things happen, it has to do with the feeling. I have to become the story in order to understand a lot of that. We've come to the end of the talk, and I will reveal what is in the bag. And it is the muse, and it is the things that transform in our lives that are wonderful and stay with us. There she is. Thank you very much. That was Amy Tan, recorded at the TED Conference in Monterey, California, February 2008. For more information on TED, visit TED.com.